0: I wonder if you will agree with me when I say that our world feels very unstable at the moment. In fact, to me it perhaps feels more unstable now than it has done at any point in my lifetime. We've just been through two years of a worldwide pandemic. The coronavirus has led to the experience of loss on a vast scale. Loss of loved ones. Loss of income. Loss of confidence. But just as we feel as though we're starting to come out of the pandemic, our news screens are now filled with other deeply troubling situations. The evidence of climate change seems to grow every month. 40 degrees heat in the UK. Terrible flooding in Pakistan. Ice caps melting faster than ever. There is a war in Europe, the likes of which we thought we would never see again. A war that has, at times, raised fears of nuclear catastrophe. There is the cost of living crisis. A situation so bad, even families with both parents in work are still struggling to afford the basics to survive. All of these things have deeply disturbed us. Then on top of all of that, we have lost our queen. A queen that has reigned for 70 years. And in recent days, she has often been described as the ever-present in people's lives that gave them confidence. Well, sadly, that is no longer the case, and great change has come there as well. And as we see the hundreds of thousands of people lining the roadsides and queuing up to view her coughing, we see the traumatic effect that her death has had on the lives of so many. Suddenly, in what seems like no time at all, our world feels foreign and strange to us. Our loss of normality and our sense of security is making us feel very Vulnerable. Now, I don't want to add to this catalogue of discomfort any further. I think I've made the point. But I must say that as Christians, we are also experiencing another source of alienation from all that we once held dear. And that is that over the last few years, our country has seemed to slip further and further from the biblical values on which it was once built. Less people are going to church than ever before. Rules are being passed that don't always tally with how we understand scripture. Many of us have experienced mockery for our our beliefs from those we work with or play with or live amongst. Some people may want to argue this point, but the UK, to me, no longer feels like the Christian country that it once was and of course all of this change all of this loss can only have one effect it makes us feel more unstable and in our fear and in our anxiety there is one question that keeps coming back to our lips where is god in all of this just what is he up to is he still present does he still care Come on, God, where are you? Now, I appreciate that this is an uncomfortable start to a sermon, but it may surprise you to know that in the Bible, God's people went through a very similar experience. It happened when they were cast into exile in Babylon. The year was 586 B.C. And in that moment, the Jews lost everything they knew and loved. And they were forced into an unfamiliar world that they didn't recognize at all. And it was nothing short of devastating for them. And many a time in their pain, the questions rang out. Where are you, God? What are you up to? How much longer must we wait before you act? And these were honest questions, full of doubt and bewilderment. But the Bible shows us that as the days and months passed, the Jews discovered something incredible. God was still present with them in their time of trouble. And more than that, his promises still held true. Because above the mighty king of Babylon, the Lord Almighty still reigns supreme. He remains sovereign over all. And it was as God's people started to discover this that they began to find new and creative ways to be faithful to the Lord, even when the context of their surroundings made prayer and worship difficult. And it's here then that the book of Daniel comes in. A book that stresses the sovereignty of God in times of trouble. And a book that encourages us all to remain faithful to God, no matter how difficult the trials that come our way. And today we begin to take a look at this book. There is no getting away from the fact that the book of Daniel begins in a time of trouble. In fact, it was full-on disaster. The opening verses speak of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and his army besieging the city of Jerusalem. It's not unlike what we have witnessed in Ukraine over the last few months, an invading army. Great violence leading to death and casualties. Homes and incomes destroyed. Ordinary citizens left terrified, wondering where the next meal is going to come from. Unfortunately, in the case of Jerusalem, the invaders achieved their goal. Israel's king was forced to submit, allowing the Babylonians to take over. The sacred place of the temple was then ransacked. And precious treasures were stolen. They were carried off back to Babylon alongside many young people. All the future promise of the next generation. Kidnapped. Unless we are Ukrainian, we cannot really begin to understand how painful this experience must have been for God's people. So much loss. So much grief. So much devastation. And that act of robbing the temple, robbing the house of God, well that was perhaps the worst of it all. Abject humiliation would have been felt because of that. The Jews believed God dwelt in that temple and even he had seemingly been unable to prevent the Babylonian invasion and many a Jew would have cried out, Where are you, God? Why are you doing nothing? Don't you care about us? Or are you just weak, God? So the book of Daniel begins with disaster. But if we read the opening verses carefully, we will discover something perhaps even more disturbing. The Jews would have cried out, where are you God? And the answer to that was that he was right there, watching on. In fact, he was right there, taking part. Daniel begins with the sobering truth that God allowed this disaster to take place. Let's listen again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Why did the king of Judah submit to Babylon? Why were the articles of the temple pilfered? It was because the Lord God himself delivered them into Babylon's hands. And suddenly we discover that God wasn't absent, and he wasn't weak. Oh, God orchestrated all of this. He was reigning over everything that had taken place. What? How can that be? Why would he do such a thing? Well, let us stop and think about the nature of God's sovereignty for a moment. First of all, we need to realise that our God is actively sovereign. And what I mean by that is that our God is the God who directs human and world history as he wills. He is so sovereign over the world that he has made that nothing takes place within it without his prior knowledge and permission. He didn't just create the world and wind it up like a watch and then let it go, disappearing off into the ether. No. Our God remains active in our world. Moment by moment, he is at work, behind the scenes, arranging things, bringing his purposes to be. God is actively sovereign But that then leaves us with a big problem. This God has said that he loves his people. Why would he allow them to experience such humiliation, such disaster? Worse than that, why would he orchestrate such humiliation and disaster? That doesn't sound like a very loving thing to do, does it? Well, the second thing we need to realize is that our God is faithfully sovereign in giving up his people to the Babylonians, God is remaining utterly faithful to his word as spoken in the past. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, when God made a covenant of love with his people and he gave them the law to follow, he made things very clear. If the people obeyed his commands, he would lead them into great blessing. If they disobeyed his commands, they would experience the consequences. And if you want to see this really clearly, I suggest you go home and read Leviticus 26. It's a whole chapter spelling out the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And in that chapter, it makes it clear, if God's people kept rebelling against him, he would scatter them among the nations. What is going on here? Well, let's think for a moment of parents trying to raise adolescent teenagers. They're utterly devoted to their children, but their children have come to that age where they're pushing all the boundaries. They're trying to discover just what they can get away with. And in that situation, the most loving things that parents can do is to discipline their children. They have to do this to protect them from going off the rails, from getting into the wrong crowds, from various activities that would damage them and others. And we can imagine parents grounding their children or taking their pocket money away for a while or turning the internet off at night so they actually get some sleep, that sort of thing. And the simple truth is not to discipline your children and to let them get away with whatever they like is not. To love them. It's to set them up for much trouble later in their adult life. Now, I know I'm not a parent, and it is much easier for me to talk about it than for parents to actually do it. But I think that we would all agree, for a parent to discipline their children is the most loving and the most faithful thing that they can do for them. Now blow that up onto a national scale. Israel have been behaving like a petulant teenager. God has raised them from being a child. They were born out of slavery in Egypt. But now they are in full-on rebellion. They've been worshipping other gods. They've been oppressing the poor. They've been exploiting the vulnerable. They've been cheating in the markets. They've been shedding blood in God's name. Rather than being a blessing to the world as God called them to be, they have become a pariah. And God had always said, if they behaved like this, he would step in and discipline them. And now he's being absolutely faithful to that promise. Things have got so bad, his people so hard-hearted that allowing the Babylonians to invade was the only means left to God in order to wake his people up, to get them to change their behavior and come back to him. God has taken a very active step that we struggle to understand, but it was a faithful one, one that he'd warned them about for centuries So God is actively sovereign, he's faithfully sovereign, but he's also humbly sovereign. It should be striking to us that God was willing to give up those items in the temple that had been dedicated to him. He was willing to give up the glory and the worship that was rightfully his and allow it to go temporarily to a non-god in Babylon. And we should see in this that when God allowed Babylon to invade Israel, he wasn't removed from that attack, not at all. He personally suffered alongside his people as well. In other words, in disciplining his children, he experienced their pain alongside them. He felt it himself. He made sacrifices himself to get his people back. And it's only now that we have the true context for the book of Daniel. Daniel was written in a time of great trouble, a time of out-and-out disaster. But above all that takes place, the Lord God of heaven and earth remains sovereign. He is actively, faithfully, humbly sovereign. And God's sovereignty may not always be visible to the world at large. But those of his people who choose to remain faithful to him, those of his people who choose to keep trusting him day by day, even when it's difficult, they are the ones who come to see it. People like Daniel and his friends are the ones who come to know that even in times of trouble, God remains in control. So let's take a brief look at our first glimpse of Daniel, the man who managed to live his life trusting in God's sovereignty, even in the hardest of times. Like all the rest of the Jews of the time, Daniel's life begins in a time of disaster. From a very good position in Israel, indeed the royal family no less, Daniel is dragged off into Babylon. And there, away from his family, away from his homeland, he has the Babylonian engender imposed upon him. They, they systematically tried to remove his Jewish identity from him. The next few verses of Daniel 1 are not unlike those re-education prisons in China. The Chinese might like to call them schools, but in reality they are trying to destroy the Uyghur people bit by bit by forcing them to take on a Chinese identity, loyal to the state, and denying their own. That's what's going on here. It's disgusting now, and it was every bit as bad back then. Daniel and his friends are in captivity. They're forced to learn Babylonian language. They are forced to immerse themselves in Babylonian literature. They're given new names, Babylonian ones, to replace their Hebrew ones. They are trained for a life of service to the Babylonian king. But within this place of great trial, something extraordinary happens. Amid the disaster, Daniel decides once and for all he will keep trusting his God. Yes, he will serve the Babylonian king as best he can. He will be a good citizen as best he can. He can do little else if he wants to stay alive. But he will resist on every occasion where he is called to deny his faith. And this book is going to show us multiple examples of Daniel's resistance. But the first we read of has to do with food. The Babylonian king is trying to force Daniel and his friends to eat the food from his palace. Now that seems harmless enough. Indeed, it seems rather generous at first. Not many of us get to eat like kings and queens. But there's an agenda here. This is another part of that sly, systematic destruction of the Jewish identity. Because the food of the Babylonian king was not kosher. It didn't follow the rules that God gave to his people in the law. It probably also been dedicated to Babylonian gods and idols in their temples before it landed on the king's table. So even this generous offer in reality is an attempt to dismantle the Jewish faith. And their trust in the Lord. But Daniel and his friends just won't have it. They won't break God's law. They will not validate the Babylonian idols. And they believe in God's sovereignty to such an extent they will fight to maintain their personal integrity and witness. And just look at what happens as a result. As soon as they make their stand, God steps in And is gracious to them. Indeed the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends soon leads to their exaltation. Verse 9 tells us specifically that God caused the official overseeing them to show them favour and compassion. He enables this negotiation to take place so they can eat vegetables and drink water rather than a king's ordered diet. God then steps in and miraculously maintains the health of Daniel and his friends despite the poor food that they were eating. Carrots and cabbages and water do not lead you to looking better nourished than people dining well, but they did in this case by God's grace. Next, in verse 17, we read that God stepped in again and he gave Daniel and his friends special knowledge and understanding. And that doesn't mean that they didn't have to study, that they didn't have to toil and invest in their re-education program. But it means that God prospered their work. He enabled it to succeed. And then again, in verse 17, we read that God steps in again. And he gives Daniel a special talent for interpreting dreams. A gift that he knows will come in handy further down the line. We'll read more about that next week. In short, despite being in foreign captivity, God still has the power to step in. And he gives his faithful servants all the resources they need to stand up for him in the trials that are coming their way. So yes, Daniel and all the rest of God's people had experienced disaster, but God remained awesomely sovereign above it. And by the end of the chapter we begin to see how this intervention of the sovereign God slowly comes to be felt by others. At the end of their re-education process into this Babylonian world, the king summons Daniel and his friends for an interview, an oral examination, if you like. And to his great shock, he discovers that the four of them far outstripped the other captives, that there was none equal to them. In fact, they are found to be ten times better in every matter than the king's own magicians and advisers, I'm sure that raised a few eyebrows in the Babylonian court. I'm sure it caused